Hey everyone, and welcome to The Seed. We are changing over to a new podcast show that is more reflective of where I am in life. Ironically, The Seed was planted by every guest that I had on my Homes and Hops podcast. So listen in, subscribe, and comment on my new monthly podcast, The Seed, which stems from Dandelion Discussions, all about women empowerment, entrepreneurship, and objectives that are often planted in us. Our guest stories are here to inspire, educate, and most importantly, to let you know you are not alone. Hey, everyone. I cannot thank you all enough for joining today. And I am going to fangirl for a moment because I am. Kelly, like I am fangirling. So I have Kelly Richmond Pope here. She is the author of Fool Me Once, my guiding light to start paying attention (laughs) to, to my books. And it also got me to also watch all the Queen's horses. So Kelly is a professor at DePaul University in Chicago, author, filmmaker, and just a downright amazing person. And I cannot tell you enough how much I appreciate how you wrote your book. Oh, thank you. Because it was like, I'm not, I'm not one of those people that have to learn a lesson on my own. Like I don't need to do the (laughs) fault in order to learn from that. I learn from other people's stories and that's how this was written in such a perfectly educational way for someone like me, whose strength is not in numbers, but could understand it in the context that you put it in. Thank you for saying that. So I have to ask you. Have you always been about numbers? <laughs> you know, um, I took my first accounting class when I was in ninth grade in high school. So I guess the answer to that question is yes. And even before high school, I used to, <laughs> as a child, I would make treasure maps and sell them around my neighborhood. Don't ask me why people actually bought them. They did. And and so I made a little bit of money. I don't know if that's considered fraud because there really wasn't any treasure, but um, (laughs) I guess I I always have been um, into numbers, but really um, loving the loving the power of understanding what money does and so or or what it doesn't do. Um, So I, I guess, yes, to answer your question, I've always been interested in it. Did you watch Family Ties growing up? I did. <laughs> I did watch Family Ties. Didn't everybody? True. But Alex P. Keaton did not have that impact on me. As he seems <laughs> no, he was, he was extreme, though. He was a little extreme. <laughs> I wasn't that kind of person. I was more like Justine Bateman with a little bit of her brother. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I wasn't that extreme. So what made you go from just looking at the numbers and being an accountant to really deep diving into the forensics end of it, which is a whole other world that I don't think people recognize. They think of forensics and they think a murder. True. Well, I, I think what's important to understand is a number on a financial statement. There's a whole story behind that number. There's a bunch of decisions, a bunch of people that are involved, not all accountants, marketing people, HR people, people even outside of the business school, you have, you know, you can have so many decisions. And so it all rolls into this one number. And so I think what's powerful about filmmaking 
and and in writing a book is unraveling the story behind that one little number. And so that's what I hope to do or wanted to do with the book is like, okay, I could show you a financial statement. And a lot of books like this um, do that. Like they have, here's the financial statement of Apple. And look, if you look at this year and this line, you can see that's a 20% drop. I mean, you can talk that way or that you can talk through the story and through mm-hmm. the through the people and through the behaviors and through the characters. And so that's what I chose to do. And I felt that it would relate to a much larger population because if if I led with the fact that, oh, this accounting professor wrote this book, everybody would be like, oh gosh, I don't even read this. But if you understand that it is a collection of stories with a little bit of accounting, but that number just knowing the story behind it is so important. And I appreciate what you said, Lisa, in your opening, because you saw the people and the decisions and the impact of that number. And that's what I really wanted. It definitely worked. And I also liked how you broke the perpetrators down. So it, I mean, in this book, you go over the Rita Crudwell story, Mm -hmm. which is mind boggling to me. Like it is in the sense of, like you, you mentioned in the story how um, you were accidentally given an extra purse mm-hmm. and going down the, do I keep the purse? Do I give the purse back? How Like the process in which you are thinking through what you should do next and which I think a lot of people, especially now with Amazon and everything, I mean, I know for a fact that I've had double deliveries on certain things you call up the the per, the distributor and they're like, just keep it because they don't want to deal with having it shipped back. However, like these are the things that that you that come into play. So when that we grapple with at such a small level to think about the story of Rita and the magnitude of theft and fraud that she that she did. And didn't grapple at all with it is just amazing to me. Well, and and to the point that you're making, I think understanding the impact that one person can make. So um, I don't know if everyone on our call has read the book, but um, what Lisa's talking about is I um, purchased a handbag and I then the following day received another bag. And so I had this decision, do I take it or do I tell that they actually made a mistake? And so I would happen to be talking to a friend on the phone and they're like, you need to sell that bag, keep that bag and sell it. Like, why would you send it back? And I was like, you know, I I really can't do that. And so although that one particular bag, it seems small, we might even think that Dixon, Illinois um, seems like a small town, Mm -hmm. 16,000 people. And Rita Cronwell embezzled $53.7 million over 20 years, one person. One person did that. And so like, when you think about my bag, what if everybody had the opportunity to get a second bag mm-hmm. and they they took it, they kept it. You know, the impact, the scale that one person can make or have is, is pretty incredible. And we're talking about it right now from the perpetrator side, but even from the whistleblower side, the impact that one person can make can mm-hmm. be incredible. So one person can blow the whistle on a billion dollar scam, you know? And so 
it, it really goes to show you how powerful we actually can be, but we often just don't feel that we are. And you'll appreciate this. What I took from that story was if somebody ever calls me or tells me when I call the bank for the accounts to only list the specific numbers versus just the account number, like just the account itself, like Dandelion Inc. If I, if I tell my accountant, my bookkeeper, listen, call the bank and ask for these specific accounts versus just calling the bank saying, ask for the Dandelion Inc. accounts, it's going to make me question now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's, Kathy never questioned anything. And so Kathy Swanson, for those that may not have seen the documentary, she was the city comptroller of Dixon, Illinois, who reported to Rita and who was the whistleblower who found the fraud. And like many people, we follow our the orders that we are um, given. So um, I'll use, since we do have a dean on the, on the line, I'll use a dean-professor relationship so my dean, um, she's relatively new. Her name is Sue Limbaugh. And if Dean Baugh sent me a message and said, Kelly, I need you to sign off on this. Don't worry about the details. We'll handle it later. Just, I just we need two signatures. I just need you to do it. She's my dean. She is my superior. She's who I report to. And the question is, even if I don't understand it or don't know the reason, am I really going to question her? Probably not. I'm just going to do it because she asked me, because I put my trust and faith in her. And so Kathy was in that similar situation. She had no reason to not do what Rita asked her to do. And that was call the bank, ask for these four or five accounts. That's what Kathy did. She had no reason to question it. She had no reason to say, well, are there other accounts? Maybe I should ask for more. She had no reason to think that. So a lot of us are in situations where I think we might stumble upon something well, what do we do with that? You know, are we going to take the next step? And even with Kathy, when she found these um, withdrawals coming out of this account, she didn't immediately report it. Even Kathy paused and said, hmm, maybe I'm wrong, you know, because we're, we're, we're very quick to question ourselves when we find something that seems completely off base. Maybe I made a mistake. And the last thing she wanted to do was say her boss was doing something when in fact she wasn't. So she needed to be sure. So even she waited a couple of days before even alerting um, the mayor that something seemed wrong. But we all, um, we all could be Kathy. You know, we all could just stumble upon somebody doing something. The question then becomes, what do you do next? That is the question. So what do you do next? Well, If you are a whistleblower, depending on the type, it depends on what kind you are. So in the book, I was very clear that I wanted to establish different categories of whistleblowers, victims, and um, perpetrators. And so since we're talking about Kathy, we'll be talking about the whistleblowers. And depending on the type of whistleblower you are, that being either an accidental whistleblower, a noble whistleblower, or, or a vigilante whistleblower, really depends on um, how you would respond. An accidental whistleblower just stumbles upon things. So they might pause a little bit. They may take a delay um, and and sort of like, maybe I'm wrong. I'm not going to rush to judgment on what this could be. A no whistleblower is a person that will step out of the group when they see people doing 
um, something that is questionable or unethical, they're the ones that are going to speak out and they're not going to be involved in it. So they, they may be little, a little quicker to respond. They tend to know the code of conduct inside and out. Everybody has worked with somebody that knows the rules, mm-hmm. you know, like they know them. And you don't even need to go look at the main because you can just ask this person because they know them so well. That's that normal whistleblower because when they see people step out, they're going to say something. The vigilante, on the other hand, that is the person that it doesn't have to have anything to do with them. They are reporting. Now, they're very similar to the noble, except they don't have to be directly involved in the situation. So I, I, I wanted to introduce those categories because what you do next really depends on, I think, where you fall into that into that category. Because nobles and vigilantes might act a little bit faster. Accidentals might pause a little bit because they're not seeking out that. They just happen to find it. And it's almost like being a professor, I almost can't stand when I have a student cheating. Because when a student is cheating, I'm forced, I have to follow through. And I got to go through all the steps. It's not something that you can say, well, don't do it next time and move on. You've got to go through a process. And so that's sort of like an accidental whistleblower because once they find something, good grief, now I got to go through this whole thing. I got to report it. I got to do this. I got to do that. They weren't looking for this. Now, nobles are quick because they know the rules and vigilantes, they're ready for the war no matter what day of the week it is. So that's why I say it really just depends on who you are. Something else that I think is interesting about the categories is that vigilante whistleblowers tend to be, um, I describe them as being more senior in their careers. Um, They can take the hit. So if they get demoted, if they get bullied, if they get harassed, they've already or they've already gone up the corporate corporate ladder. Mm-hmm. So you don't like me, so what? You know, they're, they're fine. You know, they really strongly believe in justice and will put their job on the line for it because they're not going up anymore. I feel like at the point that I am, um, even in my job, I'm probably more on the vigilante whistleblower side because, you know, I mean, what else is going to happen? I mean, That's I'm not, exactly I, what I was thinking. I was like, maybe in my 20s, I was the accidental. Right, and then, maybe- and that, and now, now I'm definitely, and anybody who knows me probably categorize me as the vigilante. <laughs> maybe, maybe not not justified vigilante sometimes, but I definitely would. I mean, I'm at a point. I think we all do get to that level that I'm going to do something about it, even if it it's not a direct impact to me, and I see it impacting somebody else. Mm-hmm. I, I would want to do something about it. Yeah, yeah, you um. You get you get old and you older, and you get yes. a little bit uh, more confident, mm-hmm. uh, and a little bit like you know, try me. I mean, I don't have that much to lose versus somebody that's much younger. Um, and and I think about I teach a graduate forensic accounting class at DePaul, and I think about what I do with my class, and I do an annual whistleblower lecture, and I'm always a little bit hesitant because. What I tell my students is that when you walk into a company, you're going to see it before anybody else, because the new eyes always sees it first. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think about someone that's been working five, 10, 20 years in an organization, then you step in, you see all the flaws first. And the question is, what are you going to do? Do you even have the social capital in that organization to speak up? 
there's a really interesting article um, a friend posted on LinkedIn about um, silence and the power of silence. And when you really think about whistleblowing, it is easier to stay quiet than to open your mouth. It's more detrimental to you personally to try to speak up. It typically doesn't do anything personally for you. And, and, and you're trying to help the organization you're working mm-hmm. in, but they're not going to see it that way. So um, I, I tell my students, you know, you, you have to live your life in a way that you can leave your job quickly if you need to. Um, and you have to be very, very cautious about who you work with, who you work for, and what you get involved in, because you can easily find yourself wrapped up into these situations. And then what are you going to do? Exactly. And then even from the time in which you do find out, no matter what type of whistleblower that you are, and then you're at that point of making action, finding out how to make action and the step afterwards can be very complex because it could be very situational. I The story that you told about that gas company that had the projections um, and they they overestimated the amount of money that, that that was going to come into the company, which then, of course, impacts their bottom line. And the response was to spread it out. Right. Spread the loss out. And you can't. Which, by the way, I didn't know that. Now I do. But no, generally, <laughs> don't allow you to do that. And no, you can't. But the gentleman did it because that even though he brought it to his C-suite's level of of saying that this doesn't seem right, we have an issue. He was then told to do something that he knew that he should not have been doing. Right, but was he gonna really push back? No. No. You know, there's um, one of the the things, going back to talking about perpetrators, um, Lisa's talking about this accidental perpetrator story that's in the book where this uh, company wanted to overstate revenue and understate expenses. And so I don't know if I have any accountants on the on the call today, but I will, I will you do. say, oh, good, okay. All right, so we understand. Well, for those that aren't accountants, you know what an income statement is? Yeah. And we know revenues minus expenses gives us net income. So the mm-hmm. higher revenue is and the lower expenses are the higher um, our net operating income is. And so that's why you see a lot of companies throwing everything into revenue and trying to reduce expenses as much as they can so they can pump up that net operating income number. And if you're a publicly traded company, then the higher that net operating income number impacts your earnings per share. So it makes it look better. And so, you know, um, you'll see that um, companies that have a lot of returns, so they might sell a lot of product and then you can, then they, the customer can return it they don't deduct that out of their uh, sales return. So they don't they don't deduct the sales return and allowance account because it's gonna bring down that sales revenue number. Nobody wants to do that. Or you throw things into the revenue number that's um, gains from other things outside of your business, anything to make that revenue number look better. And so Andy worked for a company that didn't really wanna hear any of what I just said. All they wanted to know is make the numbers work. And a lot of times executives um, charge people with just make it work. I don't hear, I don't, I don't yeah. care about the details. Just I need the numbers to be here. I need enrollment to be here. I need test scores to be here. I don't care how you do it, just make it happen. And so when you leave with that kind of attitude, then 
you can have the wild, wild west in your organization. And so Andy didn't want the wild, wild west. He was trying to be the CPA that he knew he was, adhere to generally accepted accounting principles like he knew he should, but he was just in an environment that he couldn't. And so there's research that shows that uh, a lot of financial exec, a lot of executives, when they find themselves involved in financial statement fraud, are doing it from really peer pressure, not for direct personal gain, but to just peer pressure. Or um, a lot of excuses that some of those executives will say is, uh, or, or people that middle level managers that um, are in, involved in financial statement fraud will say things like, I'm a people pleaser. I've never said no to my CFO. I've never said no to my CEO. I'm the sole breadwinner in my family. I can't lose this job. Mm-hmm. You know, so they find themselves doing things, hoping that the SEC or the FBI doesn't come knocking. But in Andy's case, they did. So it's so easy to fall victim. Another thing that I wanted to do was I wanted people to understand that everybody doesn't steal for greed. So everyone is not Rita Cronwell. Everyone is not Bernard Madoff. Some people are following the boss's orders. Some Mm -hmm. people are thinking that they're doing something good. And in essence, they end up doing something bad, sort of this Robin Hood syndrome. So I wanted to create spaces for other people, for people to see themselves in fraud in a way that they typically don't. Mm -hmm. And it's true. And you do. And it is one of those things that, especially with the Robin Hood, like the Robin Hood, your heart truly goes out to them that if you're just looking at the facts, of course, what they did is wrong. But if you're taking consideration into play of the reasons behind the reason why they did what they did, that's where, that's why I would never be a good judge because I would just automatically well, get You know what I, what I think though, is I think that I, I would love to get the data to do a study about this, but I think when you look at the way judges sentence people, I would argue intentional perpetrators have much higher prison sentences than accidental perpetrators and then righteous. So if I had to rank them, I'd say intentional perpetrators are highest, righteous perpetrators are are next, and then accidental perpetrators are under them because you can empathize and see how Mm -hmm. it happened in a way that you can't really wrap your head around with intentional perpetrators. Like, Nobody can understand why Rita would want to steal $53 million to support horses. Even if you love, and I love him, you know, I do. To, I I don't, you don't understand that in the way that you may understand Andy Johnson, who was following his boss's orders and just sort of got looped into this. You can maybe empathize with that a little bit differently than for horses. It's true. But so from start, from your experience and knowledge, from the point in which you find out that someone has, you don't even know who is, is taking from your business from that point on is the first step that you make. Is it filing a police report? Is it engage? Like what's the step afterwards? So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. What have they stolen? Is it money? Money, money. How did you find out? Was it reviewing your bank statements or how did you find out what they did? 
you know, were you looking at security footage? Were you looking at a bank statement? Were you looking at a credit card statement? Like what evidence do you have that that proves to you that they're doing? It would be my next question. And then depending on the answers to that, how much is it? And are they authorized? Did you give them authority to do what they're doing? Like, you know, so those are just some of the initial questions I would ask before just saying, pick up the phone and call call the police. I, you know, it depends on the amount. Um, theft, embezzlement from a small business is very personal. Um, unfortunately, local law enforcement, state, even state FBI, federal FBI, they may not care if it's not large enough. Mm-hmm. You know, Dixon, Illinois got the attention of the FBI because it was a huge amount of money. But if it had been $10 million, $5 million, eh, they wouldn't hear about that. Now, start to finish when she finally did get arrested. How long did that investigation take? That was, it was a quick investigation. So it was um, about a uh, about a year, which is super, super, super quick. Because typically, I mean, these things can take a long, long, long time. I'm not sure why Rita's was so expedited. Well, you know, she did keep all of her records. Everything was organized. So when they went and went and searched her home, all the boxes and everything was just there neatly. Um, So perhaps that made it easier. Um, She was cooperating um, and it was clear. I mean, it was clear cut what she did. And it wasn't a very complicated scheme. So, you know, as I say that out loud, um, I would imagine that it didn't take long because it didn't take long, but there was not a lot to unravel. There weren't a lot. She was the only sole um, offender, so she didn't have a team of people. Uh, so I think for those reasons, it, it was somewhat expedited, expedited in comparison to other cases. Do you often find that if you're just looking at a statement and you see something amiss, a number off, a charge made, whatever it may be that is unusual and there was no authorization. Do you think it's often difficult, especially when you do have more than one person, like Rita was the sole person that, and it was, it was obvious that it was her once they found out, especially the name of the account that she created, um, that do you think it, how long or how difficult it is and the percentage of times that you're able to pinpoint when you do have more than one person that has access to these accounts? So it can be difficult, but I want to say it can also be dangerous. So there's this whole stream of research called red collar crimes. And you, 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 this is just the the name of it, but you know, this, um, if you were following the, um, Murdoch murders um, on, if you were following that great example of a red collar crime case, and so I'm, I'm using this as an example because you have to be careful about approaching a person that may be stealing from you. And there are time after time examples of cases where a person has been accused and the accuser murders that person because they're out of fear. So with the Murdoch cases, if you follow, there was the Netflix series, then there was the real trial, and then there was the 2020 special that really summarized the trial. And what was fascinating about the 2020 special is they talked about the financial trail as to why they um, found his father guilty. And it was about insurance money. You know, um, he was 
well, he stole the insurance money from the death of the uh, housekeeper. And mm-hmm. like, if you follow that, if you listen for it, the the dots lead to death around money, which is what red collar crime is all about. But I, I say, um, depending on the amount, um, it may be safer to alert local law enforcement, not because you want your money back, but just because you want to be safe. You know, just imagine you're walking up to somebody and say, hey, I think you've stolen something from me. And depending on that amount, they may freak out, you know, so you have to be really careful about, I think, approaching people like that, especially in this day and age. No, a hundred percent. If you call somebody a liar, that's clearly lied. You have no idea what's about to happen to you. Keep it to yourself. You know, ask ask them, you know, I think this isn't a good fit. Maybe you should maybe reassign them. But just, you know, you got to be careful. You really have to be careful. Now, you also mentioned in the book about how small businesses, nonprofits can be very susceptible to perpetrators. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about nonprofits is, and I think about um, churches, that I'm going to pick on churches for a second, because they tend can easily have a person in significant authority without any training. So you could have your chair of the audit committee or a chair of finance committee mm-hmm. who has no background in any, in any fiscal management in those roles. And so for those reasons, you have to be a little bit careful about who is overseeing the finances. Um, but I think because volunteerism is so high, um, in nonprofit settings, they can become easily tar- easy targets. They can also become easy targets because when they do have fraud, the last thing they want to do is publicize it because it will impact donations. If you think that that nonprofit is having money taken away from internal employees, that means that they have very poor internal controls. You're not giving your money to them. It, that could be the, ma- the mindset that you are um, trying to fight against. So so that does not happen. You don't say anything. You don't regret the person doesn't get arrested and they just move on to another organization. So then they can become targets. They often tend to um, not always go through background checks the way a corporate environment would be or have. That's so true. they become they become um, targets, easy targets. And what are some of the things that that those that are in the nonprofit world or small businesses such as myself What are some things that we can do besides opening up our statements that we receive on a monthly basis? (laughs) You know, there are some basic things. I I think that um, first it's a mindset. Um, You know, a lot of us feel like I hate accounting. I hate numbers. Don't say it. Don't think it. You make yourself a target when you do. I think everybody says that when I say that about numbers, they say, until you make a lot of it, Lisa, then you pay attention. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, you, you, you don't want, you don't, you don't want to pass over that control. Um, Mm -hmm. Think about it. Think about how our other behaviors are. When we go to the doctor, we have researched whatever our problem is before we go to the doctor. And we're just going to the doctor really to have a conversation but not to really, you know, you want them to confirm what you feel like you already know. You've already done a lot of background work before you got there. When it comes to accounting though, or your taxes, 
You just go dump a bunch of papers on a desk and just walk away thinking someone's going to tell you everything. Mm -hmm. You make yourself a target when you act that way. I mean, you really do. One piece of advice, I think, for small businesses is you can take a basic accounting class and or a basic, you know, QuickBooks Pro class, just, just so that you're familiar with the flows of your organization. I also think making sure you have some type of hiring process and screening process, background checks, and internal controls. Like it, it's 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 interesting how you controls the smaller the business, the fewer controls. And it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and, and the controls could be very minor to making sure you close all accounts when a person leaves or making sure the credit card is shut off immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just some basic things that slip through the cracks because we are so busy and so overwhelmed, but you become a target. There's a story in the book um, about a guy named Tom Hughes. Tom Hughes, super nice guy. And he stole from entrepreneurs all the time because they did exactly what I described. They said, I hate numbers, don't want to deal with it. I'm going to hire you, outsource the whole thing to you. You handle everything and you tell me how much money I have and I'm going to trust you. And then that sounds crazy, but that's what they did. And he said, you know, it was like taking candy from a baby. He said, when I wanted something, I would just write a check. If I needed $500, I would write a check on their behalf and just add the $500 that I need. They never looked at their statements. So, you know, it just made it easy. I mean, I think other internal controls, looking at who, depending on who, who has access to your finances, open that bank, that credit card, open that bank statement and look at the charges. I think with online banking, it's become so much easier to just put it aside and not do it. I remember, I mean, I'm not super, super old, but I'm old enough to remember when we switched over to online banking. And I don't know if everybody else on this call, but I'm, I remember that change. I remember when I got a debit card and I was like, you mean it's not a credit card? They're like, oh, it's just linked to your checking account. You don't even have to balance your checkbook anymore. You don't have to carry cash. And that debit swipe makes it so much harder to manage your money in a way that it's just, you know, if, if, if we did a survey right now of all of us and said, how many of you know your bank account balance to the penny right now? Probably none of us would now, but pre-online banking days, we knew that information cold. We would know it. Now, it's so hard to keep up between Apple Pay, between Venmo, Cash App. We can't keep up. And so it makes it harder to manage our finances as small business owners. But we got to stop, pick a money day, make it maybe money, maybe money Mondays is the day that you set aside to do all of that kind of fiscal management for your business. You know, but we got to figure out some routine. I I think that's very helpful advice. Now, I also have to ask you this. In your book, you mentioned that on speaking engagements, because you do, you speak so often to many people, but you have actually partnered with some of these perpetrators. All the time. (laughs) So what, what is that like? You know, so first, okay, we're, we're real dramatic about the way we do it. Um, so for one, so I'll be doing a talk and um, the uh, Nathan Mueller is the name that comes to mind quickly. 
And um, so I'll open and I'll be talking about, oh, here's a picture of Nathan Mueller. And I'll start going into his, pres his, his case. And I'm like, you know what? Let's stop this. Why don't we just talk to Nathan himself? And he'll step up out of the audience and walk up and people are like, oh my God. <laughs> and so then we sort of sit down and have this fireside chat. And, you know, it's, it's um, interesting to hear someone share their story. And he was a really great perpetrator. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> you know, but you know, I think despite what the crime he committed, I think the respect that he gets from the audience is his willingness to be vulnerable, his mm -hmm. willingness to allow people to publicly attack him because some people do. And he takes it, he owns it. And he, you know, he's like, you know, I apologize. Like he, he does all of those things. But, you know, many of us don't have to share the most embarrassing thing to our, that happened in our lives publicly on a regular basis. It's and true. so I think that people um, find it as a valuable learning lesson. And so, but they're great. I mean, I love when uh, they come. Um, I did that at uh, Lincoln Financial Group in Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, Kayla Ravello, she's in the Righteous Perpetrator chapter. She came um, and did the same thing. Like, I said, oh, I went through the three perpetrator categories and I got to the righteous one. And I said, you know, I want to talk to you about the story of Kayla Ravello. And I gave a little background. And I said, you know, let's stop this. Let's talk to Kayla in the flesh. She pops up out of the audience and they're like, oh, I mean, you can hear the crowd just sort of sighing because they're like, wow, she's here and she's willing to share. And so um, I, I think it is, um, it's part of the healing process for the offender. Because mm -hmm. I'm not going to say anybody on this call, but many of us know somebody that has done something that for the grace of God, they didn't get caught doing it, you know? Mm -hmm. And you're, we're just sort of like, you need to stop or else Kelly might do a documentary about you. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> but, you know, just opening up this conversation that here you're looking at a former successful executive. Mm -hmm. who went down a, a, a bad path, you could be just like this person. You could be. So open your, open your ears to understanding what happened in the journey. So just like true crime and how um, women have a tendency to really invest themselves in true crime more than men. Like women, we are definitely their audience. Podcasts, shows, we're the ones that deep dive into it. Because of course, like they said, we're we're all we're also trying to protect ourselves. So we feel like if we know the criminal, know their behaviors, somehow, some way, we'll be able to protect ourselves from the incident happening to us. Um, because we are the max, the max amount that actually has the harm done to us. Not men, it's the women. So mm -hmm. is that the same thing when it comes to fraud that happens? Is it that women are, are they more the perpetrators or are they the more the victims? You know, when women are perpetrators, society doesn't, doesn't like that, you know, because, you know, stereotypes are real mm -hmm. and we have a, we have a way that we think women should behave. Mm -hmm. And where there's not a ton of us in the corporate ranks, not a ton, especially in the C-suite. So, you know, using someone like an Elizabeth Holmes as an example, 
she's an anomaly. You know, there's not tons of her running around, you know, that, you know, you have a $9 billion value company that might be based on a lie, but, but you don't have a ton of it. Now, are there equivalent male counterparts that are in Silicon Valley today that might have fabricated value to their startups? Probably so. She, you know, but when she did it, global headlines, you know, global headlines. So I think that um, I see more female victims when you talk about the romance scams situations. Yes. Um, so if I had to pick between the three perpetrators, victims and uh, whistleblowers, I think that there are um, more female whistleblowers just in my little sample um, than female perpetrators. And for far victims, I think are about 50-50. All right. I mean, typically a woman is more likely to admit she was a victim, but that's true. We don't, we don't, and this is just me and me just talking to this group. I think we don't look at admitting something like that as a sign of weakness, whereas men may look at that a little differently. You know, saying that you were swindled out of 50000 or $200,000 or you made a bad investment, you know, we don't mind just saying, hey, I tried it. I thought it was okay. It wasn't. It failed. Or I got, you know, I got scammed. We'll say it in a way in differently than I think um, maybe some men may. Awesome. Um, I am going to open it up to questions. Now I'm going to unmute everyone. While everybody's unmuting, I put a game in the chat for you to I play it sometime. And um, it's, it's the Fool Me Once Fraud Experience. Um, and you go in, um, you put your name, and then it'll tell you to name your favorite color and a number. You, that's just random. And then um, you go through, you pick a path. So it'll tell you, do you want to report fraud or do you want to commit fraud? At the end, it'll tell you either what type of whistleblower you would be if you were ever to be one or what type of perpetrator you would be if you were ever to be one. Super fun. A great way to really fun. Pick <laughs> off conversation. So um, I encourage you to just play around with it and share it with someone. Does anybody have any questions that they want to ask, Kelly? Uh, this is just fascinating. And um, actually, my research area in accounting is looking at readability of financial statements. And is it? What did you find that they couldn't, that, that, well, the, yeah, I'm curious what you find. The, the, what I found was that um, the, the United States of America readability or readership average is only eighth grade. Oh, and wow. so, and that hasn't changed in over 20 to 30 years. The other issue is, is although there was an SEC statement on making sure that the financial statements are readable, um, particularly M MDAs, which are management uh, management notes and, and things like that, and footnotes. Um, uh, it tends to lean when when times are better, they're easier to read. Sure. And you know what? You know what? I I'm curious, Kelly, is if um, the readability of the notes to the financial statements because yeah. the is when you did your study, it was the whole thing. It, no, we pulled out the management discussion. Okay. And I actually have it plotted over 20 years and it should be flatlined. And you can measure this in Word. I can measure any type of readability in, in, in Word. 
Um, but it's just like this, like, oh, nine, the readability is horrendous. So, but one of the questions I had, um, it's kind of interesting because as you're talking, I was looking up some, some, some embezzlement stories I had remembered, particularly mm -hmm. around universities. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. And they're not little numbers because the, uh, uh, and something, my dad was a banker and he always thought his, his supposition and, He's dealt with embezzlement. He was also an FDIC officer. Um, is that a lot of times people got into embezzling, assuming they were they were not starting out that way. They just needed a little money and they were going to pay it back. Mm -hmm. and that was the genesis of a lot of embezzlement stories. But it just the hole got so deep. Is that mm -hmm. some of the stuff, and particularly for women? Yeah, you know, I'll I'll tell you one of my first, very, very first embezzlement um, experiences, my own personal one. And um, I was a Girl Scout. And when I was a Girl Scout, my mother was like, I am not selling your cookies for you. You've got to go around this neighborhood and sell them yourself. You want to, but you want to, you're doing it. I'll store the boxes, but you know, I'm not, I'm not taking this to work and have people fill it out for you. I'm not doing that. And so I had to go sell the cookies and I had to collect the money. And I remember in the kitchen, we kept an envelope, all the girls got money in it. And I started saying, oh, you know, I just need some money for lunch. I'm just going to go put it, get it out of the girls got money. I'll put it back later when I get my allowance. So one day, one morning, my mom came and she saw me in the kitchen in the Girl Scout envelope. And I had $5 in my hand. She was like, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm just borrowing some money from the Girl Scout. That is not your money. You are embezzling. You are stealing people's money. And I'm like, Mom, I'm going to put it back. And she said, you don't even know how much money should be there. You've probably been going back and forth this envelope so frequently. So to your point, I do think it starts out by just like, I just need to borrow this just a little bit. I'll put it back. Things will get better. Two things happen. Things never get better. And you realize how easy it was to take. And so once you realize that, you're just like, well, this wasn't hard. There are no controls around this. No one seemed to notice. I probably can justify or rationalize why I have another need. So yes, you're. I think you're exactly right. A lot of them. A lot of it starts that way, I think. But you don't hear it written that way, right? So like when when you read the, um, I love to go to the Pacer um, website where they have all the criminal filings. You know. Um, the federal ones. And so you, you read the, you know, 30 pages of what the lawyers are saying or what the defense, what the uh, U.S. attorneys are saying. It really, really interesting, but they never talk about how it started or why it started. You never hear someone say, well, they just need to borrow a little bit because, and that's why I started really talking to perpetrators because I wanted to hear that why story that you never get to hear. Now, I think it's for me, and really anything, I think it's so important to know the why. And it's not necessarily to justify or 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 to give them reprieve. It it's just so you need to know what what made you do this. And, and it, often it, it does make you feel better if it is one of those things, if you think of uh lay Miz, right? Mm-hmm. He stole because he needed, he needed to feed his daughter. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there are those times that you, you do, you want to know the reason why 
again, it's not saying it's right, but, but to know the explanation behind it is so significant. And I mm-hmm. think that's what helps also as a business, as an entity to recognize as the employer, the status of your employees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a relatability that I think you learn when you learn mm-hmm. a person's why, you know, whatever that why is, when you understand why someone's doing it, you're like, oh, you'll never forget it. And I think it's important because it impacts future behavior. I think one of the reasons why the perpetrators especially come and share their story is that is what they know it's missing in the public space. Their why is not out there. That journalist is not writing about their why. The journalist is writing about the what. And Mm -hmm. so the option to speak is their, their ability to share, this is what happened. This is why I did it. I'm not saying it was right, but this is why. And I think it's important from a learning perspective for students and for Right, really anybody. It's true. I mean, it could be one of those things as an employer that your employee could be in a predicament that they didn't feel comfortable coming to you and thought of this other avenue to be able to satisfy all. Um, it could be a situation that you're an employer who clearly does not pay their employees enough <laughs> cost of living. I mean, these are all things that that need to be taken into consideration. And I think that's why it's so important to know the why. Yeah. Does anybody else have any questions? I just wanted to say hi. I'm a fellow accountant, Kelly. I work hi. in I work in SEC reporting, actually. So, oh, you're a super accountant. <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but <laughs> yeah. or I'll say maybe the scary accountant, depending. Yeah, on I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not like super well liked this time of year. <laughs> no. This is the end of the fiscal year, right? For a lot of places. Yeah. I mean, we're just going, we're just, we just wrapped up Q2. So we have to do our 10K or 10Q now. So no one wants an email from you ever. No, they're like, you're no fun. Why can't we do this? Mm -hmm. You know, know, it's interesting, Alex, that that you um, said hi and said who you are. And because one of the things about accounting that I think, out, people outside of accounting don't think about is generally accepted accounting principles means there's a lot of room. There's a lot of room for judgment and decisions. Mm-hmm. And all of those decisions, they're not all illegal. They could be very misleading. Yeah. And there's this really fine line between the two. And I don't think people outside of the space know that. They no. think it's a rule. Like you went over the speed limit, you get a ticket. This is like a sliding scale. It is. And, and I don't know that people really appreciate or find it as fascinating as I do and what you're working in. They they really don't. And like to your point, Kelly, like, you know, doing what I do, you know, you you got to do all your public filings and stuff, but you're responsible for the research too, which is so gray and can be interpreted in so many different ways. And I mean, I've been on calls where I'm with our securities attorney, our chief accounting officer, and we all have a different perspective. And it's like, well, who's going to win this argument? And like mm-hmm. so many people think accounting is just black and white and it's not, it operates a lot in the gray. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, and um, Dean Kelly may agree or disagree, I'm not sure, but I don't think we teach it in a way that shows how interesting it actually is because yeah. we're teaching 
we teach it in a very transactional way. And it's a very fascinating field. It's, 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 it's as interesting as what students view finance to be. But I don't, I think we teach finance in a different way than we teach accounting. And both of them are equally interesting, but we don't teach accounting that way. I, I, I would agree with that. that. Mm-hmm. Because one of, one of the things that's interesting, we have more women going into accounting than we've had in the past. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why, and I actually, I call it holistic accounting. You know, there are some, um, I've, I've yet the opportunity to go into um, accounting firms and, and I'm a reformed accountant is what I call myself. And, um, and one of the things that I've learned is that there's things, there, accounting is neat in a transition. I mean, I just got the blueprint for the new CPA exam. And it's 117 pages. Oh, wow. 107. I've got to make, I've, we've got to call through all of that and rework our curriculum. And, and now it's so big that as a school my size, I can't cover it all. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so we have, there, there has to be some, re- but, but there is a lot of gray in forensic accounting. That's who the FBI is hiring. Mm-hmm. I mean, I saw the FBI show up when I was at Indiana State and the public school uh, administration was in the building next to across from us. And we saw all this yellow tape and all of this other stuff. And we were like, is there a bomb and all? No, the FBI students were going in with backpacks. It was broad. (laughs) (laughs) I think that, and it goes back to how you wrote the book, Kelly, and, and how it was storytelling and looking at the numbers. And those, like, I sit on a board with Alex and I sit on a board with Laura um, and they they do they spearhead the the financial sections of the reporting, um, and I'm not the person. And it is interesting when you talk about female male dynamics. And I do see more often more females that are going into the financial realm um, than what you've previously seen. And but what I like about hearing the finances and going through the numbers with the female is that they do. It's not just like you have this top section and it balances out with that bottom section. And then there's your number. They explain the numbers in between. They tell you the stories of why this number, like here's our strong point over here that we were lucky to have to make up for a weak point that we had over here. Not not just the basic number number that's bottom line that's it. So I I really do like that because for me to be able to understand the numbers, I need the story behind it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You have to talk to the people to get the story though. Oh, hundred. So we don't always do that. We have to. Does anyone else have any questions? Kelly, can I see the rest of your shirt? I'm so curious what it says. Oh, I need to. Let me tell you what it says. I give these out in class. And so I must say first, I just realized I'm sitting in my daughter's chair. So this is not my chair with this fur all in the background. (laughs) But I just had to find a quiet space because there's like 20 people in the basement drilling and all this kind of stuff. Normally, I would not have on a T-shirt, but it is just not a good day. So, So the shirt says, accountant, someone who does precision Precision guesswork based on unreliable data provided by those of questionable knowledge. See also magician and wizard. That is I love that. 
I'll that send you is, the that's link awesome shirt. I, I give them out. I give them out in my class, sort of, just like um, to encourage like people to talk and ask questions and stuff. But um, yeah, that's what it says. That's definitely awesome. send me the link so I can share that. Hello. <laughs> So I've actually put in the chat for everyone to see um, via Amazon, Kelly, if there's another way that people should purchase the book. Um, well, I will say this. Amazon is great, but if you do want to read the book, I would strongly encourage you to support your local bookstore, wherever that may be, if there is one. That's Barnes so, and Nobles. Um, <laughs> That's our Barnes and Nobles. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Okay, let me say local independent bookstore. There you first. go. So here's our marching, here's our order. Local independent first, then we can go to Barnes and Nobles and then we can go to Amazon. I mean, Amazon's the easiest, but you know, I always try to start local because I like seeing my bookstore in my in my in my community. You know, like we I have hear them. you. I hear you. One of my favorite things to do, um, we don't have a local independent bookstore nearby. Oh, okay. Um, but I do love there's a neighboring town, Sugar and Falls, that mm-hmm. One of my hmm. favorite places to go um, towards Cleveland, and they do. They have fi- they have fireside bookstore. That they have, um, have that's the Chagrin documentary. Chagrin mm-hmm. documentary film festival is there, right? Is that the neighboring town, Chagrin Falls? Yes, but so there's yeah. Chagrin Falls, and then there's Chardon nearby. Um, I think the I think Chagrin, there's the Chagrin documentary film festival. I believe it's in the same place. I didn't come to it, but all the Queen's horses was in that when it was screening. So I remember when you said that name, I was like, oh, I don't think I've heard of that before. It's it's a great town. It really is. Um, they even have duck races there in the river that goes through the center. Yeah, you know, like in my local community, <laughs> we have shops, we have a bookstore, we have a movie theater, you know, we have, it's still like you try to support them as much exactly. as you Exactly. I agree completely. Okay. So I definitely, and I'll resend everybody the, the game that you shared. Thank you so much. Yeah, please do. Um, and here is the book. It's amazing. Um, Prime has all the queen horses. If you go to, I hate to say it again, Amazon Prime. Yeah, they, they rule the world. <laughs> they do. They do. Let's hope there's no fraud happening there. Well, Can you imagine that? They're, magnitude? they're so big. I mean, I just assume that there's something there. So they're too big. Not to have something <laughs> going on. And if everyone, um, if you can, let's all like be sure to connect uh, via LinkedIn um, so we can stay connected. Exactly. So thank you so much, Kelly. I truly appreciate it. If you are ever in town again. I will. I'll let you know. Who knows? Maybe I'll show up at... um. Youngstown State, who knows? <laughs> I've got I've got some plans. Okay. <laughs> all right. I'm gonna put my email in the chat, my email in sales. So if anybody has any questions or anything, um, let me know and I will definitely get back to you. So I'm putting the email and then on uh, my cell phone. So you can text or call or anything. I actually have one last question. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to write the book? So I had, um, I'd say 10 months, but I'm gonna put a caveat around that because many of the interviews I had done before, so I had them already. So if I look at the true writing time, it probably would have been, I'd say two and a half years if I had started from zero 
and okay. then wrote it because um, most of those interviews I had already had and collected and, and transcribed them. So they were just sort of sitting in different places. So I just was able to sort of put them all together. Okay, I lied. I have one more question. Okay, go ahead. What, what sparked you to write the book? You know, so after I did do- the All of Queen's Horses documentary, I felt like, okay, y'all, I did a film. Do I, is, is, is there enough? And so Dean Kelly, when, when, you can't, when universities started using All the Queen's Horses in their classes, people said, so do you have a te- teaching notes? And I'm like, goodness, I just did the film. Isn't that enough? Like, can't, you know, just show it and figure it out. My God. So, <laughs> I mean, so, um, and so when um, Rita Cronwell was released uh, early because she was sentenced to 19 years and seven months and then she was released after eight because of COVID, I felt like I had something to say. There's just something different about a tangible book in your hand. And, and you can touch it, you can feel it, you can hear the pages, you can drop it. And so there was, there's something that just um, resonated to, to me when people said, you should really put all of your thoughts and ideas um, in a book. And so um, that's really why I did it. I'm glad I did it. I don't know that I'll do it again because I don't feel like I have anything to say yet. So um, yeah, but that's why I did it. I'm glad I did because the film is great, but it's not as tangible like as as a book is. You know, you can hold the book up and smile. And the film is great. Um, it's definitely engaging. It's great to see Kathy and and her having a voice, being able to speak as the whistleblower, because it is true. Often whistleblowers, not necessarily in her case for what she discovered, but sometimes whistleblowers aren't treated the best way. Um, mm-hmm. But um. But what I do, again, love about it and appreciate so much that you did put it in the book is because there are so many other stories in there and lessons learned. Like I said before, opening up the bake statements Mm -hmm. and not just putting it in your drawer. Um, Don't don't spread out your losses over six months. Like like, your your CPA would know that there are there's which which is great, but. But just in case, what if I did get a CPA that I made the suggestion unknowingly and they said, okay. So talk to to Alex. She'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they should be telling you. I don't know the answer to that, but I'll find out if they don't know. (laughs) This is true. But um, I'm the Oliver family. I think she's an accountant too. She raised her family. She is. I think I, I actually cried often to Laura during tax season. And and told her how much I appreciate her and what she does, because you like I do, I feel that all those that work in numbers, there is an art and there is a creativity in what you do of knowing everything behind, not creative in a negative sense, but creative in such a positive, yeah. open sense that I think that it is lost on people whose strengths are not in that world. One of the things I always tell people is that because I'm actually not a true numbers person, numbers are adjectives. They must describe something. That's good. That's exactly. You can't just have four. It's true. (laughs) It is absolutely. Once I I got out of algebra two in high school, not that I'm bitter, but anyway, um, and once I got out of that and got into staff and QBA and stuff, 
I realized that that numbers numbers have a function, and you there is no such thing as a bad math gene. That doesn't exist. This is true. <laughs> you cannot blame it on your grandparents. <laughs> well, for everyone out there who is like me, that does not need to experience the lesson learned themselves and can learn from other experiences others have had, definitely get the book. There are plenty of stories in here of lessons that could be learned from, from both all sides of, of fraud that can occur. So thank you so much. Thank you. I've had a lot of fun. Thanks everyone. Thank you everyone for listening in to The Seed. If you'd like to receive our weekly newsletter, go to dandelion-inc.com and click Let's Connect. And please be sure to subscribe to The Seed's monthly podcast to hear more inspiring stories from other badass women that are all around us. Remember, behind every woman is a tribe of other successful women who have their back. To you all, thank you.